Um, I'm in probably your favorite book to read, the book of Numbers. I don't know how much you love that today. I'm in Numbers, the 20th chapter. Some of y'all like, I didn't make it past chapter 1, verse 1 yet, Pastor. So here it is, uh, Numbers chapter 20. I'm going to read down from chapter one, verse 1 through 7. It says, the entire Israelite community entered the wilderness of sin in the first month, and they settled in Kadesh. Miriam died and was buried. But there was no water for the community. So they assembled against Moses and Aaron. The people quarreled with Moses and said, If we had perished with our brothers before the Lord, why have you bought us into the why have you bought the Lord's assembly into the wilderness for us and our livestock to die? Why have you led us up from Egypt to bring us into this evil place? It's not a place of grains and figs and vine and pomegranate. There is no water to drink. Then Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly to the doorway of the tent of meeting. They fell down to their faces, on their faces to the ground. Get this. And the glory of the Lord appeared to them. Verse 7 says, first half of it, because they mess up after this. It says, the Lord spoke to Moses. Why don't we, why don't we pray? Father, we thank you so much that you're our firm foundation, solid rock, all of those things, Lord. There's so many superlatives that we can offer to you. And Father, I pray that you will bless us, bless those under the sound of my voice, Lord, that we may um, continue to build our lives on you and take next steps in our Christian faith. Lord, we love you, we honor you, and we give you glory in Jesus' name. I'm a little churchy, so if you agree with that, why don't you just say amen one time? So let me start today by posing a question. Have you ever said, I'll never do that again? Only to find yourself doing that very same thing not so long later. Have you ever sworn off a toxic person and said, I am never going to answer that late night text message again with the vegetable emoji? I'm never going to do that again. Only to find yourself in their arms a few weeks later. Have you ever decided that you are not going to overspend anymore. That you were not going to get on Amazon's digital day or whatever it's called, Prime Day, whatever. Y'all know what I'm talking about. That you weren't going to spend any more money at those sales where they take advantage of you, but yet you find yourself, a few weeks later, overspending. Uh, we've all been there. We make the same mistakes you and I do over and over again. We make the same mistakes often, so often, in fact, that it looks like we're practicing shooting ourselves in the foot. Now, listen, I want you to know that there is nothing wrong with making mistakes. Life is full of failures, and it's full of you picking yourself up again and starting over. But some of us are paying what I would like to describe as the dumb tax. And we keep paying that over and over again. We keep tripping over the same rock in the river. And if you found yourself in a position where you just keep making the same mistakes over and over, you probably have a bit in common, and I know I have a bit in common, with the children of Israel in this passage. They have been delivered from Egypt, and they've been wandering in the wilderness for over 40 years. And they've been wandering for 40 years, but they kept making the same mistakes. And if this was an exit exam to leave the wilderness, they would have been doomed to wander forever because they kept on on repeating the mistakes of the past. But despite all of your mistakes, despite of all of my mistakes, what I want us to learn in this passage is 
in spite of those terrible mistakes, we can come back from them. But it requires us learning from them, growing from them, and then realizing the negative and dysfunctional behaviors that have developed because of them. And so let me give you a little bit of background here, and I want to give you some habits that you need to leave behind in 2020. Okay? So the story of Numbers picks up where the book of Exodus leads off. The book of Exodus is what we can describe as the foundational event in all of Israel's history. They were in Egyptian captivity for over 400 years, and somehow, someway, God miraculously delivered them from bondage. He opened up the Red Sea. He allowed them to walk on dry ground. And then as the pursuing Egyptians were coming behind him, he, he, they clo he closed up the river behind him so that they can walk in this new freedom. It was a beautiful thing. This is the most significant event that has ever happened in the history of Israel. And then so what we see here is that although they were delivered from Egypt, they hadn't yet gotten to the promised land. So they were in this, what I would describe as the in-between time, where they left slavery, but they hadn't quite reached their destination just quite yet. And so what was happening was, is they were living in between two deeply significant events. And if you look at this book from a 30,000 foot view, you can see that a lot of this parallels the Christian life. That on one side, we have been delivered from the Egypt, the Egypt of slavery because of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. When Jesus died on the cross, our sin were, was, was, was put on Jesus. Our sin was poured out on him. He became our exodus. Just as the Red Sea was ripped in two, Jesus was ripped in two so that we could have freedom. Right? Y'all got me today, church? This is what happened. Jesus is the one that settles the ancient old debt that we owed because of our sin. He's the one that grants us eternal life. But not only that, he fixes our broken lives. Jesus just doesn't do, Jesus just doesn't save you. So that you can make it to some palatial paradise in heaven with the little angels playing the harp. That's not the goal of this. The goal is he fixes our broken life. He remedies all the people that we have hurt so that we can go out and expand his kingdom in all the world. Because of the exodus of Jesus dying on the cross and this victorious resurrection, what that means is that you and I are no longer defined by our past. We're no longer defined by our hurts and our habits and our histories and our, and our hookups. We're no longer defined that way. We're defined because we are children, sons and daughters of the living God. And when you know that, you don't need to get affirmation from everybody. You don't need to achieve in order to feel successful. Because you know that success comes and goes, but the solid foundation of Christ never wavers. His love for you and I never wavers. Let me go on here. So, so eternity is settled with the first exodus or the first significant event. But not only does Jesus save our souls for heaven, but he also deals with what we do. He also deals with our history. How do I know? Luke 4 says this. It says, the spirit of the Lord was on me because he has anointed me to preach the good news to the poor. He has sent me, get this, to proclaim freedom to the captive. What does that mean? In the words of Dr. Tony Evans, it means God wants you to experience freedom for heaven, but he also wants, you to, wants to deliver us from illegitimate bondage on earth. Wow, because when you acknowledge Jesus, this is what he does. He invites you into his family. 
He expunges your old record. Not only that, he gives you purpose, meaning, and value. He deposits in you skills and gifts that you may not have recognized before for the building up of his kingdom. And then on top of that, as I said earlier, you're no longer defined by your hurts, your habits, and your history. You are now defined by what Jesus has to say about you. That's the first and most significant event. Here's the second one. The second event that we live between is what we can describe as the second coming of Christ. So we are anticipating that Jesus came as a baby in a manger at his first coming. He's coming back as a lion in his second coming. Which means that he was, he was beaten or messed up on the cross in his first coming, but he's going to come back and defeat all of his enemies in the second coming. He came as a baby. He's coming back as a king. And I just want to know what that's going to be like. He's just going to descend from the air. You're going to see the scars in his hands. You're going to see the imprint in his side. He's going to know you and I by name, and he's going to take all of the pain away from this earth. He's going to recreate the heavens and the earth. So that means that this earth, which is subject to decay because of Adam's sin in the garden, is no longer going to be uh, filled with envy and jealousy and rival and sin. It's going to be new. Yeah. We're going to be walking with him. Like, like we're waiting for the second coming of Jesus. But while we wait for Jesus' second coming, we want the peace of heaven to come down into the chaos of earth. So we don't just stand reticent on the sidelines just waiting for Jesus like, oh, I'm just going to wait. for. I'm, just, I'm good. I'm going to wait. No, 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 no. We are the ones that are supposed to be expanding his kingdom on this earth while it happens. That, what, what does that mean? How do I do that practically? Well, you expand it in your classroom when you encourage students and teach and educate them so that they can become great image bearers in the world. You do that when you're in an administrative position, when you're helping to organize a university or a college or any of those things. Like God is using you in your sphere to bring him glory. You just have to ask sometime, God, how do you want me to do this? What exactly do you want me to do? Let me go on, that's not my note. So let me help us. Here's, here's three behaviors that we need to let, be, let go in 2020, 2022, sorry. Here's three behaviors. I'm going to give you the first one. It's time to stop blaming others for your poor decisions. It's time to stop blaming others for your poor decisions. <sighs> Have you ever run into people that make terrible decisions and then dump it on somebody else's lap in order to avoid responsibility? Have you ever run into someone that refuses to take personal accountability for their choices? That when something happens, they're quick to point the finger instead of taking the blame. You've probably heard stuff like this. If you didn't make me so angry all the time, I wouldn't have exploded on you. Here's, here's a very common one. I never thought I'd be the type of person that cheats. But you just make me feel so unappreciated. If you and dad had modeled a healthy relationship then maybe my marriage would not have fallen apart. Like, what they don't realize is that blaming others is a subtle way of attacking them and abdicating responsibility. It's the act of shaming others because of our sin. And sadly, we use it as a defense mechanism to protect our fragile egos. And that's exactly what we see in verse 3 through 5. The people here are on the hills of entering into the promised land. They, but they run into a problem. There was no water. 
Now, this was a problem that they encountered before because uh, in year one of their wandering, they ran out of water and they got upset and, and God provided for them. But this time they decided that we're going to quarrel against Moses and Aaron. Now, I want you to notice that people will attack you when you're at your lowest. How do you know, Pastor? Because it said that Miriam just died. Verse 2, Miriam was Aaron and Moses' sister. So here they are grieving the loss of a loved one. They have some environmental issues because there's no water. And rather than the leaders coming up with a solution for the problem, they complain, castigated them, and challenged their leadership. And what they say in verse 3 is, if we had perished with our brothers before the Lord, why have you brought the Lord's assembly into the wilderness and for all of our livestock to die? Now, I know when you look at that, that just seems like a regular complaint. But I'm going to be honest. When I saw this, I scratched my head a little bit. Because remember, this is in verse 20. But seven chapters early in, verse, in chapter 13, what we learn is that they could have entered into the promised land. Yeah. God promised them that they were going to have victory if they go. So what they decided to do is send out a few spies to go and traverse the land for 40 days. And they said they traversed the land for 40 days, and they came back with a majority and minority report. Ten of them said, they all, well, they all agreed that the land was fertile. They all agreed that it was filled with grains, figs, vines, and pomegranates. They all agreed. They all agreed also that the people that inhabited the land were powerful and forceful. Ten of them said, oh, we can't go because they're grasshoppers in their eyes. The other two said, Joshua and Caleb, oh, we better go because God promised us victory. I don't care what the, what the, the enemy looks like. If God gives you the victory, that means he's going to fight on your behalf. So they said, let's go. But Israel decided to side with the majority report. They wanted to reverse courses and go back to Egypt. And then they wanted to stone the people that gave the minority report. See, they could have been enjoying the fruit of the land, but instead they were choking on the dust of the desert because of their own poor decisions. Are y'all seeing me today, church? They made a poor decision, and now they're blaming Aaron and Moses because the wilderness is not like the promised land that they refused to enter. In essence, they're blaming Moses and Aaron for the consequence of their own poor choices. It's blame shifting. And the truth is, if we're honest, we do a lot of the same thing. We blame others for the consequence of our own stupidity. It's all of us. We, we are so desperate. We are so desperate to point the fingers at others that we often overlook that we are the common denominator in many of our poor decisions. No one forced us to go get that credit card and rack up the consumer debt. Nobody filled the application out for us. No one coerced you to get into that fractured relationship. Instead, people told you, don't do it. Because you think he's handsome and attractive, but I really know his character. I know how he dogs women. I know how he lives the double life. I know that he might have on a Tom Ford cologne, and he might smell good and look good, but, but his internal character is really, really destitute and stinking. I'm, I'm telling you, don't do it. Nobody forced us to do that. And if you're in that position today, we can help clean you up. Don't even worry about it. 
Don't worry, you can reverse courses right now. You don't have to stay in that beaten up relationship. You don't have to settle for someone that talks down to you and tells you that you wouldn't be anything without them. You don't have to deal with that. They didn't make you. The soul that's in your body don't belong to them. Don't subject yourself to the abuse of others, especially when God never intended you to be verbally abused, mentally abused, physically abused, or emotionally exhausted. God has the power to turn your X into a Y. Why did I date them again? And then you look at a picture on Instagram, you'd be like, oh, that's why. That's why. Oh, yeah. Yeah. They put the thirst trap out. You're like, oh, that's why I dated you. That's right. That's right. You better learn how to block them. You better block them. You're like, Lord, help block the attraction that I have in my soul for that person. Anyway, let me go on. I'll save that for another relationship series. I know how much y'all, y'all do that. Y'all love that. This is what I want you to know. Situations don't force you to sin. The situation elicits the sin that we have in our own hearts. Yes, your wife might have pushed you. Not physically. They might have pushed you to the the point of emotional exhaustion, but you chose to respond passive aggressively. Yes, I know traffic is heavy. You should have left earlier. (laughs) Lying to your boss. Hey, I'm about 15 minutes late because it's a lot of traffic out here. No, you just slept in late. You, you know that. Stop lying. But, it, but anyway, traffic might be heavy. But you don't have to curse out the person that is in the other lane. They can't control it. And, what's, and what, Let me go on. Let me go on. Circumstances don't force you to sin. But they do bring out what's really in your heart. They're really revelatory of who we really are. But here's the beautiful thing about Christ. Is when you choose to come out of the shadows and admit your faults, he said in 1 John 1, 9, that I am faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and cleanse you from your wrongdoing. Here's what somebody needs to know in here. God has more than enough grace to cover up your mess ups. He has more than enough grace. He's got an eternal deposit of grace because of the death and resurrection of Jesus that cannot be expended. So when you, when you deny or when you blame shift, you're denying yourself from receiving the forgiveness that Jesus died for you to experience. Okay, y'all didn't feel that? Okay, okay, that's cool. That's cool. Nobody wants forgiveness in here. I haven't done anything wrong, Pastor. God has freedom he wants you to access. But the key is asking for forgiveness, right? Now, let me, let me just switch gears here. Let me, let me help my, my people that enable other people's behavior for a second. Like, it's human nature to want to help someone. It's human nature to want to help your kids. It's human nature to want to help your friends and your spouses, coworkers, all that. That's fine. However, there's a fine line between supporting someone you care about and enabling their bad behavior. Get this. Some people in your life will never start to take accountability for their actions because we always come in to help them and fix the problem whenever they run into the dilemma. Like like some of you have been praying, God, can you help my spouse? Can you help my friend? Can you help this person mature? Can you help them grow? But the problem is, is every time they make a poor decision, you come in like Captain Save a Day. You come in to save the day. 
You go into the wallet and pay for the expense. You go up to the school and fight with the principal. You'll say, my child could have never done it. You know they did it. You know they did it. You know they got it in them. They little sinners. <laughs> you know that. But what happens is, when you, when you keep solving the negative consequence of their action, you're giving them the impression that their behavior is acceptable. And solving the problem makes enablers feel as though they're doing something good. But the truth is, is that you're hurting them deep down. Here's the thing. There's a deeper issue in our hearts while we do this, isn't it? It's because deep down, you and I love to be the hero. We love to say that we came in and saved the day. We love to say that we got somebody out of a jam or we helped them grow. Listen, we delay what God wants to do in people's life when we circumvent his process. Keep bailing them out. Keep saving the day. Well, what am I supposed to do, pastor? You're supposed to repent because you're not their Jesus. You're not their Messiah. And not to say that you shouldn't help people, but there's a fine line between coming in and saving the day and fixing all the problems and making them go away as opposed to allowing them to experience the consequences so that they will know that this is not something that I should take part in. While you're seeking to save them, your idolatry is destroying you. Because God doesn't want you to be a superhero. He wants you to be a broken vessel in which he can use. So that's the first one. Here, here's the second one I want to give you. Here's another behavior. It's time to stop responding to every critic. Good Lord. Uh, I don't know if you know this, but before I became a pastor, uh, I wanted to be an op-ed writer. You can Google my name. I wrote some really awful articles if you want to. I wrote some okay ones for Christianity Today, but uh, NJ.com, they were awful. Terrible. Terrible. Anyway. I wanted to be the next town of Hissy Coats. I was like, I'm going to do something. I'm going to write. I'm going to fight for justice. I used to have Pastor Jacob editing them and then yell at him when he made too many edits. I'm like, don't get rid of that sentence. That's the power sentence right there. That's the emotional hook. He's like, well, it's an emotional hook, but it's also a run-on sentence. So it's a run-on, you know? I mean, how do, do you want me to do something? I'm like, be quiet and just send it back to me. So I wanted to be Tana Hissy because I remember I published this article one time. I was so proud of myself. My wife and I celebrated. We drank some sparkling apple juice. I looked at that article a few hours later. And I had so many comments on there of people telling me how foolish I was. They were making up words to disrespect me. They were calling me a political liberal, all type of stuff. right? All type of stuff was going on. And then that's when I realized, oh, you don't have cyber muscles. But I still try. I try to respond to everyone on the article. Everyone. And you know what they did? They washed me up. What type of pastor are you? I see you leading that church in Camden at the time. I, I, you, you can barely write. They were hurting my feelings. But let me just tell you, as they were disrespecting me, here's what I realized that it would have been better for me not to respond at all. And so what we see here in verse 6 is that Moses and Aaron are being lamb blasted by the children of Israel. They're challenging their leadership, their wisdom, their credibility, the group challenge, their public authority. They rallied against them. 
And the brothers responded in the best way that they knew how. They didn't. They didn't respond. Rather than defending themselves, sometimes the best thing to do is not defend yourself at all. Rather than responding to all of your critics, sometimes we need to sit in silence. Like, Like some of us, however, we try to respond to everybody. Every post on Instagram, every post on Facebook, we throw so much shade in our IG stories, you would think that we are oak trees. That shade, like I'm an oak tree. Only the iPhone users got that. It's okay. That's good. That was a, that was a really that was a well timed joke. It's a real time joke. Anyway, anyway, we like we like to respond to everyone, but in the words of the prophet uh, Sean Carter, says this: says a wise man told me, "Don't argue with fools, because people from a distance can't tell who." Is who? Some of y'all know that line. Y'all, 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 okay, let me go on. You be, when you try to respond to everybody, you will become physically, emotionally, and mentally exhausted. And here's the thing. Life is full of critics. It's full of critics. If you're going to do anything in life that's worthwhile or valuable, that impacts people's lives, you better be welcoming of critics. Because critics are often affirmation that you're doing the right thing. If Jesus didn't respond to every critic, and if Jesus couldn't avoid criticism, how do you and I think that we're going to avoid it? But the reason that you and I don't like criticism is because deep down we're not okay with people disliking us. We are nothing more, if we're honest, if we take away the shade of everything, we are deeply, deeply people pleasers. And we do it subtly, don't we? We consistently overcommit. Rather than telling someone we can't do something, we will just overbook. It's like you can't be in both places at the same time. Someone has to be told no. So we tell people no by de facto. I'm so sorry I couldn't make it. I I had a double. We don't tell people that at all, right? We we feel complimenting others out of a sense of obligation. We feel like we've got to say something nice to them or shading the truth or refusing refusing to state our true feelings. The problem is that when our satisfaction rests on the happiness of others alone, that it will become a moving target. You can never please everybody. If you want to please everybody, go ahead and buy an ice cream stand and sell ice cream and make sure you have some dairy-free ice cream and you'll please everybody. Some gluten ice cream with no nuts. Like, I'm telling you, you will please everybody. But if you want to be a person that makes an impact for the kingdom of God, if you want to impact people in your sphere, you're going to have to expect that people are going to say things about you and you cannot respond to everybody. And that you are not going to be liked by everybody. Get this. You are not everybody's cup of tea. Nobody's required to like you. Just because you are kind and polite, some people are just not going to like you. That's on them. You continue to be who you are. Some of us code switch and try to modify our behavior so that we can be in certain friend groups. If they don't like you for who you authentically are, then you are in the wrong sphere of influence. I'm just trying to help somebody. Like, like if you're a chronic people pleaser, you will always wear yourself out trying to live up to other people's standards, and you cannot do it on your own. You're headed, well, what do I do, pastor? Here's what you do. You be like Jesus in Luke 2, 52. 
It says that Jesus grew in wisdom and stature in favor with God and man. His goal was to please God first. He wanted to make sure that the Lord was pleased with his activity and what everyone else had to say about him did not matter as long as he was doing what the Father said. Pleasing people is secondary. Like it's a bit like it's nice to please people, it's nice to do what they want, but doing what God wants has more eternal benefits. Are y'all with me? Here's the third thing. Here's the third thing. Stop making hasty decisions. Stop making hasty decisions. What does haste mean? Haste is defined as acting with excessive speed without making, without making due or sufficient consideration. It's, it's making a quick decision without ample deliberation. It could also be described or defined as something said or done hurriedly without prayerfulness or forethought. Have you ever made a hasty decision? And as soon as it came out of your mouth, you just wish you could just pull it back in. Have you ever had this little nudge from God where he's telling you to slow down and then you overrode the nudge? And then a few weeks later, you see why. He's like, I want you to pump the brakes, but you keep hitting the accelerator. I want you to get off on this exit, but you want to keep going down the highway. And eventually what happens is down the highway, there's something called a toll that you have to pay. I'm not going to pay your toll of pain because of disobedience. I'm encouraging you to get off the highway now. Because if you get off the highway now, it might be a little bit slower for you to get there, but you can avoid the toll of pain that will have you coming back to me anyway. Like God wants some of y'all to slow down. You are making decisions too quick, too quickly without thinking about the ramifications of your decisions. You don't know how a decision today can impact you for tomorrow and yesterday and, and the years to come. And so what happens in verse six here is Moses and Aaron run into a similar, a similar circumstance. There's an urgent matter in the camp. They have millions of people in the wilderness and there's no water. I don't know if you know, but you need water to drink in the arid desert. They run into the, the, a huge problem. The people rally up against them, and you would think that at this point, they would just make a hasty decision. Like, what would you do? You'd be like, everybody, grab a shovel. We're just going to start digging. No, that's not what we would have did. We would have said, all right, this is what we're going to do. We're going to go to the neighboring land, and we're going to ask to borrow some water. And then for every gallon, we're going to pay some interest on that water. We would have came up with a hasty decision. You know why? Because we're always rushing. We always feel the, 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 the pressure to act now. We can come up with a problem at 803 and feel like we got to have a solution at 807. We're in, a, we're in a culture that makes you make decisions quickly, but when you make poor decisions or when you make hasty decisions, it always requires sideways energy to clean up that mess. Either way, you're going to have to expend energy. So I would rather spend, expend energy making the right decision as opposed to making a quick decision and then having to take time to clean it up later. Are y'all with me today? Let me just help somebody. One out, of a one out of ten decisions you make in your life is urgent. One out of a hundred is a true crisis. 
So that means more often than not, you have time to deliberate, to think. So get this, rather than running and crafting a temporary fix, Moses decided to go to God for a lasting solution. Some of us want to patch it up. You don't need a patch up. You need a total overhaul. And so they go to God. They say, God, they fell down on their face in verse 6. I love it. And they started to invite God into the problem. They say, God, I can't do this on my own. I don't know what they're saying, but I think if I, I can imagine they probably felt this way. I can't do it on my own. I don't have the own, my own strength. And then verse 7 and 8, we find out that God shows up. So catch this solution. They had a problem. They ran to God for the solution. He gave them a plan of action. Let me start over. They had a problem. They ran to God for a solution. He gave them a plan of action. This is what we do. We have a problem. We try to fix it on our own. We make it worse. We run to God. We complain that he's taking too long. Let me say it again. We have an issue. We try to fix it on our own. We refuse to pray. We say that we got this. We make it worse. We extend the deadline. Then we finally come to God. And then we get to God, then we get mad at him that he doesn't fix the problem immediately, even though it took us months and years to create the issue. He don't work on your timeline. You remember when Jesus was on the boat and they said, Master, don't you know that we perish? Jesus didn't, he didn't calm the winds and the waves immediately. He got up a little bit. He had to stretch some. He walked up the steps slowly and gently and then said, peace be still. When get into the corner. Waves, I want you to settle down, even though the waves would have kept on going for hours and hours. He's like, I want you to settle down. Then he looks at the disciples and says, why did you doubt? I was just trying to get a nap. In other words, Jesus didn't fix the issue on their timeline. He fixed it on his own timeline. And I'm just trying to tell somebody, some of y'all are rushing God right now. Why are you rushing God when he told you to slow down in the beginning? He told you to slow down. Let me, let me go on here. So here's, here's a principle I want you to grasp. Write this down. The devil rushes, but God guides. The devil rushes, but God guides. Do you remember in Luke 6 where Jesus is about to make the biggest decision in his ministry career? Where he has to decide who is going to carry out his vision to impact the world and expand his kingdom. And you know what Jesus did? He went up to the mountain and prayed, and he prayed all night long. He stood up there and prayed. Rather than rushing and making a haphazard decision, he asked God for guidance and wisdom. And I really believe that a lot of us could avoid needless pitfalls in our life if we just invite God into the situation. And if we just take our time, stop rushing. Stop moving so quickly. Jesus said, before I make a decision, I'm going to have what the old church mothers would call a shut-in. I'm going to pray on the mountain. I'm going to commune with the Father. I'm going to sit up here and have a prayer service and ask God that he would give him wisdom. And let me ask you this. If Jesus needed time and deliberation to make his decisions, how much more should we? If Jesus needed to slow down in order to commune with the Father before making a hasty decision, how much more do you and I need to sit down and ask God to help us. Because in the, in the words of Brian Loritz, here, here's what I would say. The only thing worse than waiting on God is wishing that you had waited on God. 
That's the only thing. But here's what I know about God. Is when you wait on him, he often gives you, he gives you more blessing for your trouble. When you trust him, see, I, I get the feeling right now that some of y'all are in a wilderness situation. Like you're in a wilderness situation and, and you're like, God, when am I going to get to the promised land? Well, well hold on. He's got to get some of that Egypt out of you first. He's got to work some of that out of you. And that doesn't happen instantaneously. They could have taken this journey in three days, but it ended up taking 40 years. It didn't have to. But I don't know how long your wilderness journey is going to be, but it doesn't have to be. It doesn't have to be as long. But God's got to work in you first. Like some of you want to be super duper successful in this coming season. You want, to, you want to win. You want to get to that goal that God has for you. But what if he's calling you in this next season, in the words of Tim Keller, to fail? And then have you succeed at the next thing? What if this is a season of preparation for what he has for you in the future? Are you going to try to create your own opportunities? Or will you trust him to guide you when you don't know what's going on? This is the question of nature. So, so listen, three things I want us to be mindful of as you grow. It's time to stop blaming others for your poor decisions. It's time to stop responding to every critic. And it's time to stop making hasty decisions. And you might be saying, well, Pastor, how do I do that? I would submit to you that it all starts with prayer. It all starts with prayer. You simply say, Lord, I can't do this on my own. I've got so many blind spots. I, I can't see all the things I'm doing wrong, but please help me to stop blaming others. Please stop helping. Please help me to stop responding to every critic. Please help me to not make hasty decisions. And Jesus, when I do it, please let a little alert come up, come up in my soul, like a notification on my phone, to let me know, son, it's time to slow down. Daughter, you're blaming your wife. Or son, you're blaming your wife when it's really your fault. And what I can promise you is that the Lord of grace, the Lord of glory, will give you grace in this season. Why don't you pray with me? Father, I thank you so much for your grace and your mercy that's been expended to us in Jesus Christ. Lord, you are really, really good, and you are awesome. Lord, we all struggle with blaming others for our poor decisions. We make poor decisions, and the next thing you know, we want to pass off the consequence to other people. Lord, would you bless us to recognize when we're messing up? Would you help us to stop responding to every critic? Would you help us to stop making hasty decisions so that we can walk in the newness of life? Lord, we thank you for your goodness and grace. We pray that you will be with us in Jesus' name. And everyone that agreed with that say, amen. Can we give the Lord some praise?